Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. Homosexuals are a minority group consisting of a large number of people who belong, participate, and are constantly aware of something that binds them to others and separates them from the larger stream of life. Yet, a group without a spokesman, without a leader, without a publication, without an organization, without a philosophy of life, without an accepted justification for its own existence. 
Donald Webster Corey, The Homosexual in America, 1951. Nineteen sixty-five. A great lead-smelting fortune is passed down a family tree from a recently deceased businessman to, as far as he knew, his daughter. The businessman's child almost immediately contacts Christine Jorgensen's doctor, Harry Benjamin, and he begins his transition. The heir to the lead-smelting fortune renames himself Reed Erickson. Erickson was the first person assigned female at birth to get a master's degree in engineering at Louisiana State University, later becoming a business owner, manufacturing bleachers, all while keeping the secret of his true gender. With his father dead, Reed begins his new life. Reed Erickson has never been active in any trans or gay liberation group, but he spent his life running with lesbian crowds. At his all-girls high school, Erickson's lesbian friends called him Eric. Now, as a newly wealthy trans man, he begins to pour his money into queer issues. And not just queer issues personal to him. Within a year of inheriting the fortune, Reed establishes the Erickson Education Foundation, donating nearly $72,000 to the new John Hopkins University Gender Identity Clinic, and almost as much money to the work of his doctor, Dr. Benjamin. It funds Harry Benjamin's upcoming groundbreaking book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, the first large American publication explaining and advocating for a path through gender transitions. The Erickson Education Foundation is established to provide assistance and support in areas where human potential was limited by adverse physical, mental, or social conditions, or where the scope of research was too new, controversial, or imaginative to receive traditionally oriented support. So the EEF funds counseling, medical conferences, gender clinics, major medical research, and publishes educational pamphlets for trans folks, helping people change their names and find good surgeons. Also, Reed likes to fund dream research, acupuncture, and dolphin communication studies. Reed soon marries a woman, and they adopt a leopard kitten, which he takes everywhere he goes. He purchases a nudist colony in Florida and a compound in Mexico he calls the Lovejoy Palace, where he experiments with psychedelics. Reed Erickson has plenty of fun with his new fortune, and his life is now immersed in philanthropy and unique causes that he finds important. So when a request for donations to a homophile organization crosses his path, it looks like a natural investment for the Erickson Education Foundation. Previously, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. These are the faces of the enemy, the leaders of the Viet Cong, the strategists of the hit-and-run jungle war which has kept the United States itself on the defensive. We're in Vietnam to fulfill one of the most solemn pledges of the American nation. Randy Wicker brings the League for Sexual Freedom to the U.S. Army's Whitehall Street Induction Center in Manhattan. The picket's total attendance is nine people. We don't dodge the draft. The draft dodges us. They pass out the flyers explaining the Army's policy of dishonorably discharging homosexuals. Homosexuals died for U.S. too. The Army versus Sex. 
the end of this sea of hostility that has been you know, preventing love, dehumanizing sex, and making such loneliness and such alienation, frustration for everyone. And then you see, we'll both be able to make love, not war. Why do you keep doing this? Why did you run? A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Donald Webster Corey, uh, his book, The Homosexual in America, it's made an excellent case for our rights. I've read The Homosexual in America. I think every gay person should read it. People were afraid to buy it from newsstands. I, I can't see why. Now there seems to be a militancy about the new groups and new leaders. We are the experts and the authorities. Any homosexual who would come to you for treatment would have to be a psychopath. There is now an organized homophile movement, a minority of militant homosexuals that is openly agitating for removal of legal, social, and cultural discriminations against sexual inverts. I'm Devlin Camp. And this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. One magazine has been in print since 1953, the longest-running homophile publication. One. All caps. O-N-E. One magazine story on this podcast started way back in Season 1, Episode 3. Many of the original founders are still working there in 65. Dora Legg, Don Slater, Tony Reyes. But with all the competing organizations now, they're losing money. And they've kept pretty busy. They have a lot of irons in the fire now. One Incorporated established the One Institute of Homophile Studies program in 1956. It's the first educational institute for homosexuality in the United States. They published a beautiful book called Homosexuals Today, which is a handbook of all the known homophile organizations in the world. You can take a look at it on my Instagram at Queer Serial. As you might recall from season one, One beat the postmaster in a major Supreme Court case. And all the while, they attended Mattachine and Belitis conventions and held their own annual Midwinter Institutes. They build a massive library of queer history, often from the personal donations of queer people. After an eviction from their original Hill Street office, where Dorleg was interrogated by the FBI in Season 1, they moved to Venice Boulevard. Over the years, their funds have dropped as subscriptions to newer homophile publications rose. And those readers of the new publication sometimes come upon an essay or two in the Mattachine Review, pretty blatantly criticizing one magazine's assertive writing. And of course, folks in the East Coast organizations don't think one is assertive enough. But one can't be too assertive with their magazine, or they'll be seen as obscene pornography by the government. It's a very delicate balancing act. Dorleg has dedicated himself to the publication, quitting his day job and living on savings. Some say Dorr has worked so hard and long for One Incorporated without any pay that the debt they owe him makes him indispensable at the organization, no matter how unlikable he's become to many people. 
Original Mattachine founder Harry Hay once said, I could never look at Door without thinking of the carved wooden handle of my grandmother's umbrella. Door is tough, but he's effective. When an urgent message requesting that a one incorporated representative go to Louisiana for a major donation, Dorleg borrows a suit and books a plane ticket, paid for by this mysterious potential donor. Door is picked up at the airport, but before the man will discuss any business, he says, You have to meet Henry first. Door enters Reed Erickson's massive home. There lies Henry. Go on, you can pet his head. Henry is Reed's pet leopard. I thought Henry would be your lover. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm straight. <laughs> You're a straight man looking to give funds to a homophile organization? We have a lot more in common than you might think. Reed explains his story to Dor, including that he's one of the first people to medically transition from female to male. Reed Erickson recommends that One Incorporated start a nonprofit arm of their organization so that they can accept large donations. Erickson recommends calling it the Institute for the Study of Human Resources. They can name him president, and he can begin sending money immediately, starting with $10,000 to fund a bibliography of homosexuality. Dorleg agrees. Fantastic. Let's start there. After the initial 10000 to get started... The EEF will send a thousand a month to your new nonprofit. How's that sound? Mr. Erickson, I I expected for our magazine to be the lifeblood of our organization. This sudden influx of money is far larger. I expected that if the publication were to ever fold, the organization would be taken down with it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Erickson. This donation, these donations, would help keep one alive even if we were to lose the magazine. One Incorporated is bigger than a magazine, Mr. Legg. It looks to me like your organization has been controversial and creative. It's a difficult task to convince heterosexual people to fund you if you're challenging them by showing off your classes about queerness and archiving the history of people they don't even understand. A transsexual funding a homosexual organization makes perfect sense to me. I agree. One magazine is like any other homophile publication's office, full of drama. Early in 1965, as Reed's donations are coming in, there are business meetings abruptly adjourned, contested elections, fighting through Robert's Rules of Order, and political games with proxy votes— Really, we've heard that story before, more or less with the Mattachine. Dorleg announces, We will be electing additional members as Don Slater will be dismissed as a member of this corporation. Don Slater withdraws from one in protest. At the next corporate meeting on March 2nd, the third remaining founder of one and lover of Don Slater, Tony Reyes, attempts to take the floor, but Dorleg is the chair and won't let him speak. Soon after, Dor storms into an editor's meeting, like he's Roseanne Barr in a writer's room. I demand the resignation of one magazine's editors immediately. You have no right to influence or even discuss the corporate policies of one incorporated here. Under Dor's latest power trip, resignations of longtime employees of one magazine pile up. One night, Don Slater can't sleep. He turns to Tony. I have a solution. 
Don Slater drives to Universal City the next morning, just north of Hollywood, to sign a lease for a new office space. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. Their cause must be our cause too. Members of the news media, state troopers have been assigned to your protection. You are to move off of the street immediately and assemble in front of Lehman's Pontiac Theater. Otherwise, you will not be protected. Detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. Go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. See that they disperse. bridge out of Selma, Alabama, and are marching the 50 miles that will take them to the state capital in Montgomery. A few minutes before one this afternoon, Selma time, the vanguard moved over the bridge and passed the point where state police stopped them two weeks ago. Behind them, a solid mass of demonstrators streamed out of Selma and across the Alabama River. Federal troops and a federalized National Guard stood by as the march began and now lined the road. They were ordered here yesterday by President Johnson to protect the marchers against those Alabamans hostile toward the demonstrators and their leader, Martin Luther King, who was first to cross the bridge and continues to lead the procession. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid the Billy Club. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. The Mississippi or the Alabama sheriff, who really does believe when he's facing a Negro boy or girl, that this woman, this man, this child, must be insane to attack the system to which he owes his entire identity. Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example. This is being done, after all, not 100 years ago, but in 1965. Time of justice has now come. No force can hold it back. The harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had cheap labor. If you will march on with your brothers in Alabama, yeah. 
it's time for us to say to these men that if you don't do something about it, we will have no alternative but to engage in broader and more drastic forms of civil disobedience in order to bring the attention of the nation to this whole issue in Selma, Alabama. I fixed the coffin. And I carried it to market. And I built the railroad under someone else's whip for nothing. For nothing. Then if they don't listen once more, we will dramatize this whole situation and seek to arouse the conscience of the federal government by marching by the thousands on places of registration all over this state. CBS News Special Report Selma, the city and the symbol. There is CBS News correspondent. Frank Kameny speaking. Have you read the New York Times yet? I was just getting to it. Cuban government is alarmed by increase in homosexuality. Huh. Havana, April 15th. Homosexuality has become an alarming political and social matter in Cuba, a leading newspaper of Premier Fidel Castro's government warned today. In an article titled Revolution and Vices, El Mundo of Havana said that the sexual deviates were blatant in Cuban cities and had infiltrated intellectual and art life. The article singled out the ballet and suggested it was better to disband some dance troops than to tolerate them as known centers of immorality. Homosexuals are conspicuous in some neighborhoods of Havana, particularly the part of 23rd Street known as La Rampa. Okay, the article commented, the virility of our peasantry does not permit that abominable vice, but in some of our cities it is rampant. Homosexuals unite and form a clan. The newspaper stressed that the Castro Revolution would fight vice until it was banished from our virile country, which is locked in a fight for life or death with Yankee imperialism. The article declared that no homosexual represents the revolution, which is a movement of he-men. El Mundo said that the revolution would not persecute homosexuals, but would break their positions, procedures, and influence by applying, get this Frank, Revolutionary social hygiene. This was understood as a warning that homosexuals would be rounded up and sent to labor camps. Dear God. This is it, Frank. Lige and I think it's time to pick it. For Cuba? For homosexuals in Cuba. Well... Are you a nationalist, Frank? Of course not. Shouldn't all homosexuals be responsible for each other? I see. I see. And Randy Wicker says he can be ready to pick it in New York by Sunday. We can do it first. D.C. before Randy does New York. Yes, Lige. Frank Kameny. It's Randy. Have you read the Times? 
The next day, Saturday, April 17th, 1965, Gail Johnson pulls up to Lafayette Square on the back of her boyfriend's motorcycle. She's in heels and a dress, just as Kameny requested. Their demonstration will look much different than the one in Washington this morning, organized by the Students for a Democratic Society against the war in Vietnam. Thousands marched in the largest demonstration for peace in the nation's history this morning, and many of them are still bustling around as Mattachine members arrive at 4 p.m. for their own demonstration. The Mattachine of Washington's only lesbian member, Lily Vincennes, arrives for this picket. She believes that this organization is set to change the world with actions like this. Vincennes is a German immigrant with a master's degree from Columbia University. She worked for Walter Reed Military Medical Center in Washington for one week, until her roommate became suspicious of her and reported her as a homosexual. Vincennes was immediately discharged, but finally, she was free. No more secrets. She wrote to Kameny for a place in his society, and today she watches as her new friends in activism arrive for their very first picket. John Swanson, Paul Kunstler, and Jack Nichols's co-worker Jean Kleberg arrive with their handmade signs pre-approved by Kameny, of course. Judith Kutch, a bisexual woman, arrives with a sign, too. The women are ordered by Kameny to wear dresses and heels, and all the men are ordered to wear suits and ties, because Kameny says... If you're asking for equal employment rights, look employable. Perrin Schaefer and Otto Ulrich, who have government security clearances, are allowed to wear sunglasses to help conceal their identities. Seemingly unconcerned with concealing his identity, Lige Clark arrives in a convertible with his boyfriend, Jack Nichols. Lige works for the office of the Army Chief of Staff, so Jack doesn't want him to pick it and risk losing his job. Instead, since he wanted to participate, he hand-lettered some of the signs for the event, some of which are now in the Smithsonian. Lige pulls up in front of Lafayette Square, just across from the White House, and helps Jack unload the signs. Lige then pulls away and drives straight to work at the Pentagon. The Mattachine of Washington's own president, Robert Bellinger, doesn't pick it. But Kameny leads the militant members of their chapter toward the White House at 4.20 p.m., where cops have chosen a designated spot on the sidewalk for the picketers. There's no Cuban embassy in the Capitol, so the homophiles decided the White House will just have to do. Tomorrow, the New York activists will march outside the United Nations. Kameny notified the press of the picketing locations, and before reporters arrive, Kameny puts everyone and their signs in a specific order for passersby to read. Jack Nichols leads the line. The event was his idea, and even more importantly to Frank, Jack has that all-American white cis man look. Behind him is Frank, then Lily Vincennes, followed by the seven other members. No one is allowed to speak to each other or anyone passing by. No one is allowed to smoke, just walk, and pass out some press releases to tourists. It's the Saturday before Easter, just hours after the massive protests against the war. So tourists stop by throughout the entire hour, watching this small band of homosexuals in a circle. Some people look on in disbelief, reading the signs. 15 million U.S. homosexuals protest federal treatment. We want federal employment, 
honorable discharges, security clearances. Cuba's government persecutes homosexuals. U.S. government beat them to it. Governor Wallace met with Negroes. Our government won't meet with us. U.S., Cuba, Russia, united to persecute homosexuals. U.S. claims no second-class citizens. What about homosexuals? Cameras click behind lampposts. One photo captures the line marching against a police officer with his hands on his hips. Later, documents will show that agents also took photos of the license plates of every car that dropped off a picketer. An exhilarating but calm hour passes with just a few snickers from tourists. When the homophiles are done, they pack up their signs. Again, there isn't much press coverage. They couldn't give much notice to reporters. But the Afro-American covers the march. They typically have given more coverage to gay events than most media. Jack Nichols will later say, Nothing had happened except we'd been galvanized, and to a certain extent, immunized against fear. Dear Barbara, News, 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 news. History in the making. History in the making. History in the making. <laughs> Frank arrives home and immediately writes to his friend in Philly, Barbara Giddings, editor of The Ladder. I'm writing this very, very wearily and very, very contentedly after returning from home following a 10-person picketing officially by the Mattachine Society of Washington of the White House. There were seven men and three women, while on two instances by the same lone person about a year apart, the White House has been picketed in our cause by one person alone. This is the first time that there has been any kind of mass picketing, and the first time by a homophile organization. Because there were several tens of thousands of students in Washington today to picket against the Vietnam War, we had to schedule our demonstration after they were out of the way. As it came off, it ran from 4.20 to 5.20 p.m. We were given a choice spot directly in front of the White House. The police, both White House police and Metropolitan Police, were courteous and helpful. The police had been informed in advance. The newspapers had also been informed in advance. Fondly, Frank. Energized by the event, Frank puts another fresh sheet of paper into his typewriter and composes another letter for John Macy at the Civil Service Commission. He reminds Macy of his 1962 request for a meeting with the CSC, and this time, if he doesn't get it, he'll pick it. The next morning, picketers arrive at the Broadway MSNY offices. Thousands of flyers fresh off the Mimeo machine had been handed out through Greenwich Village all weekend by Randy Wicker. 29 people show up, including Allen Ginsberg. Many of them are nervous. They might be attacked. Most members of the homophile groups just stay home, still against the radical concept of picketing. But Randy Wicker is there, of course. Craig Rodwell, too. 
They were both at that first little picket at the Whitehall Army Induction Center two episodes ago. From the Mattachine Society of New York, new members Julian Hodges and Dick Leish joined too. From the Daughters of Belitas, Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin are there. They all raise their signs and begin to march, their own little Easter parade, across Manhattan to the United Nations. They walk up Fifth Avenue to 42nd Street to a park by the UN, where they march for two hours. Eastern Mattachine Magazine reports on the pickets in D.C. and New York, saying both demonstrations and their effects can probably best be summed up by a remark overheard at Hammershold Plaza when one woman in a mink stole and an Easter bonnet stood watching the demonstration with another middle-aged lady, then turned and said, You know, when you're as disliked as homosexuals, it takes a lot of guts to stand up for your rights. 15 million U.S. homosexual citizens protest Cuba's actions. Labor camps today, ovens tomorrow. Individual freedom, see. Persecution, no. The two onlooking ladies walk by, and they say, it's about time, and they shake the picketers' hands. Meanwhile, while the eastern homophiles are marching that morning, on the west coast, hundreds of volumes from one incorporated's massive library speed up Cuenca Boulevard in a moving truck. All sorts of rare queer history taken in a heist. And even more importantly, the lovers who drive the truck also hold one magazine's distribution list. They lock up the books and even some of the office furniture in a warehouse. For the protection of the property of the corporation. Original Mattachine founder Harry Hay and his lover John Burnside wake to a phone call. When Harry enters the slope-floored storage unit, he's astonished. We didn't leave them so much as a return address label. Don Slater locks up the storage unit and then returns to the empty one offices with his lover, Tony Reyes, for the board meeting Don has called. Dor Leg then arrives for the meeting to see the two men standing in the empty office, waiting for him. Dor might not have been surprised. He's already made his own copy of the magazine's distribution list. So, over the next four months, there will, ironically, be two versions of one magazine. The Los Angeles Free Press prints the headline, One Becomes Two, Homosexuals Split. Resignations follow, but not from the original founders, Leg, Slater, or Reyes. Both sides are determined to win. Some members demand their reconciliation or their resignations. Dor holds a meeting to remove Don from membership in one. Don sends a letter to subscribers announcing One Inc.'s move to Coenga Boulevard. A lawsuit is filed. On one side, the original One office. On the other is the group who led the heist, now called the Tangent Group, named after a regular news column, Tangents, written by Jim Kepner for One magazine. The Tangent Group announces that they are... The majority of legally elected board members of One. They start their own magazine called Tangents as the courtroom battle is waged. Both sides badger the same list of subscribers to send money to cover their legal fees. In court, Dorleg explains, Your Honor, you must not treat us as equals. This is clearly a case between a banker and a bank robber. Don Slater's attorney and the judge discuss. The attorney says to the judge, You know, Your Honor, this is a bitch fight. They're suing themselves in a way, because legal title to the name has not been established by either party. The judge says, You two old aunties go out in the hall and fight this out. 
they end up splitting the one archives, this massive library, down the middle. Some of the multi-volume sets are even split up every other volume. Always the wiser, Harry Hay says, this was a matter of two dinosaurs spitting at each other, not realizing that dinosaurs had become obsolete. Other homophiles on the East Coast are already planning their next picket, another one at the White House. I hate men, Susanna Valenti writes in the latter. I inwardly gnashed my teeth when I was denied the supreme joy of playing with dolls as I was dying to do, or worse still, when I saw my sister bedecked in dresses I would have been given half my life to wear. There is a pattern for men to be fitted into, and woe to those who do not want to or are not able to conform. Society is actually sentencing to oblivion a good percentage of each individual's personality. If a girl wants to wear pants, who is going to stop her from doing so? Let a man walk to the corner store wearing a print blouse and a skirt, and you'll see pandemonium. So as a TV, a transvestite, I hate men for being so stupid and allowing themselves to be kept within the bondages of the masculine ideal. The transvestites are the only ones who are rebelling against this artificial definition of what man is and wants, and we feel proud of being able to show the world an honest inner self. All too often, there is a tendency to be concerned with the rights of homosexuals as long as they somehow appear to be heterosexual, whatever that is. The Janus Society writes in their newsletter, The masculine woman and the feminine man are often looked down upon but the Janus Society is concerned with the worth of an individual and the manner in which she or he comports himself. What is offensive today we have seen become the style of tomorrow, and even if what is offensive today remains offensive tomorrow to some persons, there is no reason to penalize nonconformist behavior unless there is a direct antisocial behavior connected with it. Not far from the Echo plans being laid, in Philadelphia... A chain of casual lunch counters called Dewey's suddenly begins to refuse service to anyone who looks queer. One of their locations, on 13th Street near all the bars, is open all night. It's widely known as the spot for late-night hustlers and drag queens and queers in leather to hang out. The 17th Street Dewey's location wants nothing to do with that scene. They start kicking the queers out. Word spreads. A TV station picks up the story on Friday night. The Janus Society, a homophile group in Echo, the East Coast Homophile Alliance, they keep an eye on Dewey's, and they get an idea. Just over five years ago, in February 1960, four African-American college students sat in a whites-only North Carolina Woolworths, and they ordered coffee. This nonviolent form of protest has caught on quickly. Thank you, Bayard Rustin. On Sunday, April 25th, 1965, 150 protesters show up at Dewey's in Philly. Black, white, gay, lesbian, and transgender people fill the shop and sit in. Police are called. Three protesters who refuse to leave are arrested. Clark Pollock, the Janus Society president, walks over to the patrol car. Clark says to the arrested protesters that Janus can get them a lawyer if they like. An officer comes over, asks Clark what he's doing, and arrests him too. They're all charged with disorderly conduct. And, as promised, Janice gets right to work. 
1,500 leaflets are handed out to customers entering Dewey's. The next week, on Sunday, May 2nd, another sit-in is organized. Customers are refused service again. Police are called again. Cops come to speak with protesters and read their pamphlets. And then... nothing. No arrests. The queers eat. The cop, reading the pamphlet, explains to his partner that these people know their rights. They are legally allowed to eat here. The cops call their sergeant, who calls the lieutenant, but the sergeant comes into Dewey's and basically apologizes to Clark. The officer says they can all stay as long as they like because the police have no authority to ask them to leave. Defeated, Dewey's management ends the discriminatory refusal of service, and everything returns to normal. So, that's the power of protest? Some young activists wonder. Just a quick little peaceful demonstration, and one week later, it's all over? Okay, we'll be right back following this message. This week on my Patreon, we are headed north to Canada. In the U.S., homophiles had one magazine. You know, the magazine that just had a schism in this episode? One magazine, The Homosexual Viewpoint. In Canada, homophiles had two magazines. They even used almost the same subtitle, The Homosexual Viewpoint in Canada. It was published out of a gay bar and has lots of writing and also lots of physique photos, unlike the American version. Sadly, it only ran 11 issues, but we're looking at most of them on my Patreon. Check out Canada's Two magazine and all sorts of queer history deep dives and the bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial. It's a dollar a month to see all the research dives like this one and three dollars a month to include all the bonus podcasts from all three seasons and the infamous crimes Boise Sex Panic series. Plus, there's lots more bonus stuff, but I'll let you check all that out for yourself at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes. Dear Ed, you have justly earned the title of the father of the homophile movement. I know that you are not without pride in the appellation, and properly so. What you have done in the past is enormously to your credit. We are deeply indebted to you. You can contribute a great deal more. Fourteen years ago, 1951, a book called The Homosexual in America, A Subjective Approach, inspired many of these activists. Harry Hay, Barbara Giddings, it's the book that Frank Kameny was discussing when Jack Nichols slipped into his circle of friends that first night they met. The book is so progressive and controversial that Chicago libraries kept it locked up in the rare books room so people wouldn't steal it. People were scared to have their name written on the checkout slip. The author, Donald Webster Corey, has been active in the homophile scene ever since he published the book in 1951. If you've listened to this show before, you've likely heard me mention his name. 
Donald Webster Corey has been running the Corey Book Service, a monthly gay book subscription, and he's published an anthology of gay short stories called 21 Variations on a Theme, including a short story by Christopher Isherwood. Corey also wrote Homosexuality, a Cross-Cultural Approach, and The Lesbian in America. And though he was married to a woman this whole time, his gay stories have been rather autobiographical. Corey has actually had a whole separate life. He used to work in the cosmetics industry, and he published a book back in 45 called The Science of Art and Perfumery. That was published under his legal name, Edward Segarin. And now, in the mid-60s, Frank Kameny is reading Donald Webster Corey's newest book, The Homosexual and His Society, A View from Within. In this book, Corey slash Segarin claims that there is no such thing as a well-adjusted homosexual. We're all sick. Frank writes to his father figure. Dear Ed, however, I have watched increasingly unhappily as, over the past several years, you have fallen by the waysides, as the movement, having now a strong life of its own, has moved past you, leaving you behind as your attitudes and approaches so well suited to the early days of the movement have not kept up with a movement changing so rapidly internally in response to external changes which in significant measure were precipitated by that movement and by you that even those in the forefront sometimes cannot keep up. Until now you have become no longer the vigorous father of the homophile movement to be revered, respected, and listened to but the senile grandfather of the homophile movement to be humored and tolerated at best, to be ignored and disregarded usually, and to be ridiculed at worst. In Corey's 1951 book, that first gay book, the psychologist Albert Ellis wrote the introduction, disagreeing with Donald Webster Corey. Ellis has held on to the opinion that queers are sick and need curing. As Corey has aged, his views drifted closer to Ellis's. He now disagrees with his own first book. He believes homosexuals are sick, but also incurable. Neurotic, but able to find some amount of happiness through therapy, but forever sick. Corey, a.k.a. Sagarin, now writes that he's been trapped by a human tragedy to which I could not adjust. In the new 1960 edition of his classic book, Corey writes, change toward acceptance of the heterosexual life rather than suppression of the homosexual life is aided by a freedom from guilt and fear and hence becomes far less difficult than I had anticipated in the original text. Inasmuch as this is a subjective study, I am happy to say that I found such change not only possible, but personally rewarding. This Jekyll and Hyde version of Corey and Segarin shows up at the 1964 Daughters of Belitis convention to reprimand people who reject the theory that we're all sick. He calls the pride of these lesbians a defensive, neurotic, disturbed denial of the sickness theory. Corey declares that they are all sick, all of us queers. And soon after, he announces his bid for president of the Mattachine Society of New York. I am writing this without animosity, hostility, or antagonism, and in a feeling of personal friendship, 
and with great sorrow that events should have taken the turn which they have. However, the clock cannot be turned back. Either you keep up with the movement, or you will be dropped by the wayside, as is indeed now in the process of happening. Young militants of Mattachine, New York, Julian Hodges and Dick Leish, who picketed recently, they write to members, encouraging them to vote for more progressive leaders. They write that the old guard of Donald Webster Corey's readers, the self-described sick homosexuals, are pushing for assimilation with heterosexuals. Do not vote for him. The debate for or against the sickness theory picks up in the latter. Frank Kameny is furious because homosexuals are not only losing their jobs because they're seen as potential blackmail victims, but now these doctors are saying homosexuals are sick, another reason to lose their jobs. And they're being encouraged by queer Edward Segarin, writing with authority under his own prominent gay pen name. He's saying he, and thus his queer community, are medically unstable. Fire away, State Department. Latter editor Barbara Giddings prints Frank Kameny's new six-and-a-half-page essay. It's titled, Does Research into Homosexuality Matter? This is one of the most important issues, probably the most important single issue, facing our movement today. We are right. Those who oppose us are both factually and morally wrong. We are the true authorities on homosexuality, whether we are accepted as such or not. We must demand our rights boldly, not beg cringingly for mere privileges, and not be satisfied with crumbs tossed to us. I have been deeply gratified to note in the past year a growing spirit of militancy on the part of an increasing number of members of the homophile organizations. We would be foolish not to recognize what the Negro rights movement has shown us is sadly so. That mere persuasion, information, and education are not going to gain for us in actual practice the rights and equality which are ours in principle. As little as two years ago, militancy was something of a dirty word in the homophile movement. Most people operate not rationally, but emotionally on questions of sex in general, and homosexuality in particular, just as they do on racial questions. It is thus necessary for us to adopt a strongly positive approach, a militant one. It is for us to take the initiative in matters affecting us. It is time that we begin to move from endless talk to firm, vigorous action. A seven-page rebuttal by Florence Jaffe follows in the latter. She advocates for studies to be done in order to better understand homosexuality. I would ask where the Negro civil rights movement would be today, militant or not, if research into racial differences had not long ago supported the Negro's claim to equality of treatment. And where would we be today without Kinsey's two classic volumes on sexual behavior? Ours is a science-oriented society, and scientists are God to most people. In the long run, I do not think it can be seriously doubted that what science says will be important for the success of the homophile movement. There is no reason why we cannot support research and do other things at the same time, especially since the interests of persons in the homophile movement differ. The homophile movement is not like a new brand of toothpaste which may be sold to the public by superficial promotion techniques. 
Kameny's method is ineffective, to say the least. The question of whether or not they are or should be considered sick is not a question capable of being decided by vote. Kameny gives it right back in another issue of the latter as the debate continues. Emphasis on research has had its day. Anything, even toothpaste, can be sold thus. The homosexuals' problems are political and social, not, in essence, psychological. They are problems of discrimination and prejudice, of law and custom. When the election for the new Mattachine New York president comes in May 1965, Donald Webster Corey announces he will quit if New York adopts the same anti-sickness position as Kameny in Washington's Mattachine. On election day, members vote in Julian Hodges and Dick Leisch as their new young militant leaders, along with Frank Kameny on their board. Donald Webster Corey, a.k.a. Edward Segarin, father of the homophile movement, follows through on his promise. He quits. He's gone. Rumors spread that Julian and Dick steamed open the envelopes the night before the election to change some ballots, but no one really seems to follow up on that. Frank writes to Barbara. The vote seemed to represent a clear mandate for our views and a clear defeat for the conservatives, the closet queens, and Corey Sicknicks. As the East Coast militants prepare for their second picket at the White House, membership in MSW, DOB, MSNY, and Janus grows yet again. New York's group in particular grows quite a bit, from 100 members up to 445. Kameny is appointed chair for the new Committee on Picketing and Other Lawful Demonstrations, and ECHO announces their next demonstration for May 29, 1965. Jack Nichols stops by every news outlet in town with press releases two days before the next picket. When he walks out of the offices, he can hear the people at their desks gasp as they read the release. Some of them follow Jack down the hall to ask questions. Others leave the office to pretend to get a drink so they can have a peek at a real live faggot, Jack writes to Dick Leish in New York. I loved every minute of it. Ten men and three women arrive at the White House at noon in dresses and suits, carrying their signs. Government should combat prejudice, not submit to it, and promote it. Another sign pokes at the president. White House refuses replies to our letters. Afraid of us? The press finally really latches onto this picket. The Washington Star, New York World Telegram, several TV stations, French media, the Associated Press, and the New York Times cover the event the next day on May 30th. Many publications refer to homosexuals as a newly visible minority. After thousands of years, finally. Dozens of papers all over the country describe the homosexuals as well-dressed and well-behaved, seemingly surprised at how quiet and orderly deviants could be. Frank's dress code is working. Homosexuals stage protest in Capitol. The Chicago Sun-Times reprints a recent piece on homosexuality from the Washington Post, which originally ran the piece with a photo of a blurry silhouette. The Sun-Times runs their reprint with an image of Jack Nichols, Frank Kameny, and Lily Vincennes. Craig Rodwell of New York 
suggests using this momentum to start an annual picket. We can call it the annual reminder. The reminder that a group of Americans still don't have their basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Dad? Jack Nichols Sr. bursts into Jack and Lige's house. Shoving by them, he throws up the couch cushions and lifts picture frames off the walls. Dad, what's going on? Do you know what happens if Hoover finds out what you've done? He finally responds to the Mattachine Society. Jesus Christ, Jack, you have no idea what you're getting into. Hoover knows I have every right. He has every right. Get out. It's okay, Lige. I'm fine. I am two years from retirement, Jack. Two years! The director wrecks pensions for retiring agents who are far less damaging security risks. He will ruin me if he finds out, and he will find out. I use a pseudonym. Oh, sure. A lot of good that does everyone else. Jeff Winters, Lisa Ben, Ian McDonald. If you need a name, tell them I'm Warren B. Adkins. I've spent my life working and keeping you out of trouble, and all this time I've put back savings, and you are going to make them take this from me? Jack Sr. grabs a sheet of paper and writes down a list. Then he rips it into slips and lays each of them out on the sofa. You comprehend how a family tree works, right, Jack? Your masculinity is exhausting. I make the money. The money moves down these branches when I die. You make me lose my pension, no one on these branches below gets anything, including you. Yeah. Our branch ends here. So why don't you and I go to some lonely spot in the country, and I'll take along my gun, huh? I'll show you how to do some real target practice. Get the fuck out. I wish I made this scene up, but this is exactly how Jack said it happened. Get out of our house now, or J. Edgar Hoover will definitely find out who I am. I never want to see you again. And he never does. Shortly after, Jack's stepfather in Florida sees the Mattachine Society of Washington on the news. There's Jack. He calls the FBI, looking for information about Jack's group. They decline to tell him anything, but word makes its way all the way up to Director Hoover. Jack Nichols Sr. is questioned, and he tells the Bureau everything. I can give you his address, and he's using a pseudonym, Warren B. Atkins. He says he didn't even raise this son from his first marriage. They barely talk. I do not want to jeopardize my job or my family, and if asked to do so by the Bureau, I will stop seeing my son. We only have occasional contact because I would like to influence my son to think someday as a normal male. Special Agent Nichols' failure to advise the Bureau of this problem involving his son is inexcusable. Agent's actions could develop into a source of great embarrassment to the Bureau. Jack Sr. is recommended to be censured, placed on probation, and transferred out of D.C. For his flagrant disregard of regulations. Hoover initials the recommendation. Jack and Lige move closer to the Pentagon for Lige's job. Perhaps it's Lige's attempt to lure Jack away from Frank a bit. They still spend hours together on the phone doing Mattachine work. Or maybe Jack and Lige just want to move to a new address. The FBI searches their files for a Warren Adkins. Jack's pseudonym is all over their documents. From Eastern Mattachine Magazine to the Gazette, which they send to Director Hoover himself. Jack's pseudonym is even on a letter from the Mattachine to the President of the United States. The picket holds more unintended consequences. 
New York's Belitis president, Shirley Willer, and her lover, Marion Glass, go to the National DOB board to discuss their stance on picketing, against it. The majority of the ECHO homophile groups voted in favor of picketing, but Belitis did not. The Daughters of Belitis asked ECHO not to pass any policies that contradict the policies of the groups that make up ECHO, which includes DOB. At this particular point, we do not have confidence in the leadership as demonstrated by the Eastern Medicine groups, who, under present circumstances, would be able to override DOB in any and all cases. And what DOB's participation would amount to is tacit support of the Medicine program. We would prefer to hold DOB's identity as a separate organization intact and cooperate with the Eastern Medicine groups insofar as we are able. A week after the second White House picket, Shirley and Marion cut ties between Belitis and Echo. Frank writes to the DOB president and their board. We had nationwide and worldwide publicity in every favorable sense. It was shown on TV in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Miami, Indiana, Texas, Seattle that we know of so far. Articles appeared in the New York Times, New York News, Washington Star, Chicago Sun-Times, Orlando Sentinel, all factual or sympathetic reports. It was reported by Associated Press, United Press International, Reuters, French News Agency, and others, including the White House Press Corps. The picketing was well and properly done. The ten men and three women participating were well-groomed and well-dressed. Suits, white shirts, and ties for men. Dresses for women were mandatory. We were told that ours was an impressive-looking picket line indeed. We were informed that DOB would picket only when the action was backed by the larger community. First, this is arrant nonsense. When one has reached the stage where picketing is backed by the larger community, such picketing is no longer necessary. The entire force and thrust of picketing is a protest on issues not yet supported or backed by the larger community. Second, this is in keeping with the mentality which has pervaded this movement from its beginning. Homosexuals must never do anything for themselves. They must never come out into the open. They must work through and behind others. They must never present their own case. Let others do so for them. We have outgrown this closet queen type of approach, and it is well that we have. Echo, by formal vote, is sponsoring the June 26th and July 4th demonstrations. The others are still too far ahead for formal action. As chairman of the Mattachine Society of Washington's Committee on Picketing and Other Lawful Demonstrations, I ask you, will you join in the ECHO sponsorship of these demonstrations? Do you want yourselves listed as supporters? According to Shirley and Marion, the motion mentioned above means that DOB is now withdrawing from ECHO. With the kindest of feelings towards you, I will say that if you do not keep up with the movement, I predict that DOB will go down the drain as a meaningful organization, not by overt act of anyone else in the movement, but because that's just the way movements evolve.
After three years of demanding meetings with the Civil Service Commission, Frank already has his plans in motion to picket the CSC. John Macy wrote back that it would serve no useful purpose for him to meet with Frank. Frank threatened to picket, and now he has to follow through. Frank Kameny cannot cancel this picket. The CSC is shaken before the picket can even go on. The Court of Appeals ruled that the Civil Service Commission cannot fire Bruce Scott for immoral or homosexual conduct, as that is not specific enough grounds for firing. The court has ruled that simply being a homosexual isn't enough to be fired. The Mattachine of Washington considers whether they should still picket the CSC, especially since the CSC is now deciding if they want to appeal this verdict to the Supreme Court. So, two days after the Scott ruling, Kameny writes to John Macy at the CSC again to ask once more for his own discharge to be undone. Kameny argues that he also wasn't told exactly what he had done to be fired, aside from simply being a homosexual. Three days pass, and Kameny writes to Macy again, threatening a picket in four days unless Macy agrees to a meeting. Frank includes a press release draft for such a picket. Macy finally writes again that it would serve no useful purpose for him to meet with Kameny. The press release goes out. June 26th, 1965. Eighteen men and seven women show up outside the Civil Service Commission. The CSC notifies the FBI... Despite Shirley's message from DOB, Echo does picket, and the Washington Post covers it. Signs outside the CSC read, Chairman Macy is guilty of immoral conduct, and Civil Service Commission refuses to confer with homosexuals. Afraid? Kay Tobin snaps a shot of Lily Vincennes, leading three men in the picket line, a perfect shot for the latter's October cover. Maybe, through the magazine... Tobin and Giddings can convince the daughters of Belitis to come around to the effectiveness of peaceful demonstrations. As the picket continues, a man pulls up in a car, watching the marchers outside the CSC headquarters. He decides not to park and turns around. As he pulls away, Frank catches a glimpse of the driver. Chairman John Macy, he's sure of it. Frank will write to Macy again, essentially now spamming him about how well the picket went. And they're just getting started. July 4th, the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, is traditionally the day for reinstatement and reaffirmation of the liberties and rights with the proclamation of which our country was born in 1776. July 4th is a day for serious, solemn, and probing thought. It is a day properly to ask, are we guaranteeing to all of our citizens the rights, the liberties, the freedoms which took birth and first form in the Declaration of Independence and in the documents such as the Constitution and its Bill of Rights, which followed upon it? 
Or are these concepts merely being given lip service for some of our citizens? We now try to bring our case directly before the public, before our fellow citizens, on a day and at a place which are singularly appropriate. We do so confident that we will have a fair hearing from our fellow American citizens. The buses are parked outside Independence Hall in Philadelphia on July 4th, 1965 at 3.30 p.m. People of the organizations in ECHO come together, totaling 39 members. Suits and ties, dresses and heels, all according to the ECHO rules, even in this 90-degree heat. A member of the MSNY is even told not to picket because he's dressed too casually. Frank Kameny, Mattachines of Washington and New York, the Janus Society, and Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin of the latter are all here. Ernestine Eckstein from the New York Daughters of Belitis is here and will become the first lesbian woman of color to march for homosexual rights. Jack Nichols, Craig Rodwell, everyone it seems is here. Even Shirley Willer of the DOB. She is very outspoken about preferring men's clothing, but even she wears a skirt in accordance with the rules. Shirley arrived in her nurse's flats and switched to heels before the picket. The heels are now tearing the flesh off her ankles, and she'll never forget it. They march, all of the East Coast homophile organizations, together in one circle outside Independence Hall. Some of the signs are printed in snappier fonts this time. Support homosexual civil rights. 15 million homosexual Americans ask for equality, opportunity, dignity. Homosexual Bill of Rights. Homosexuals should be judged as individuals. An inalienable right, the pursuit of happiness for homosexuals too? Perverts, you're criminals. A woman gets into the circle, but a plainclothes policewoman takes her away. Hold your noses, kids. It smells here. I don't believe this. They're all actors. The march continues for an hour and a half until 5 p.m. There isn't much mainstream press, but Confidential Magazine does run a feature about the first annual reminder and the other pickets this year under the headline, Homos on the March. By the time that issue hits the grocery store checkout lines in October, a far more radical action will hold the country's attention. Next week on Episode 5, Homos on the March, or Keep Moving, Faggots. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. The annual reminder pickets will have lasting power. In fact, you've probably participated in a related event. Stay tuned. Edward Segarin, a.k.a. Donald Webster Corey, has quite a little postscript. 
After losing the Mattachine presidential election, he continued pushing his nonsense, calling homosexuality an illness of distress, loneliness, promiscuity, search for affection with little success, depression, superficial gaiety. Segarin went into NYU's PhD program and submitted a dissertation about deviance. He didn't admit his membership in the organization, but the dissertation was about the Mattachine Society. And most people at this time didn't know Segarin was Donald Webster Corey, except for those Mattachine gays who were in the know. In the dissertation, Segarin even refers to himself in the third person, writing Donald Webster Corey and several of his friends and correspondents. He goes on, writing, Despite its denials, and in spite of its intentions, Mattachine thus becomes an agency proselytizing for the spread of homosexuality. Segarin lets go of his pen name and appears on a panel trash-talking pro-gay sexologists, and in 1968, he writes this to Frank Kameny, Alas, I do not think gay is good, and I do not think the slogan is good, and I do not think it is good for gay people to have such a slogan, and I do not think it is good for a society for people to say that gay is good, although it is bad for a society to say that gay is bad, and it is good for a society that people have the courage and fight to say that gay is good even though gay is not good. Whew, don't quote me on that. I may want to refine it a bit. Yeah, I couldn't help but quote him on that. It's just too fun. Okay, and then here's the juicy part. At a 1974 convention of the American Sociological Association in Montreal, Segarin went too far. He criticized gay sociologists who do research from the closet. And in that audience, closeted gay sociologist and author of Tea Room Trade, Laud Humphreys, stands up and addresses Segarin. Humphreys says, I want to be honest with you, and I want you to know that I am gay. I have done my research and written my book as a gay person, closeted, trying to come out of that closet, dealing with my own personal pain. Now, I want to ask Professor Corey, I mean Segarin, to be honest with us. Never has he identified his research population. He's just always said that we are lying. I want to know who he has studied. The audience stands and applauds Humphreys for outing Donald Webster Corey. Edward Segarin, now accidentally exposed as Corey, stands up and bursts into tears, confessing, I am my data. And he leaves the stage crying. He never published again as Donald Webster Corey. As for Reed Erickson, the wealthy trans man who donated to one magazine, he obviously left a huge mark. But we won't see much more of him on the podcast. He was relatively private and rarely gave interviews, Piecing his story together is rather difficult. Check out the Making Gay History episode about him. There's a link in the episode notes. As he became familiar with San Francisco's queer politics because of his close ties with Dr. Harry Benjamin, Erickson's Education Foundation funded the National Transsexual Counseling Unit's rent, furniture, and salaries for counselors who help trans people all over the world. This program supported people like Elliot Blackstone, the SFPD's liaison to the queer community, who helped transform the city for queer folks. Reed Erickson was a trans man worth $40 million. He continued to fund Juan Incorporated's nonprofit through 1976. As for One and Tangents, both have survived in their own ways. Tangentgroup.org is a frequent resource for this podcast, offering very niche queer history material, such as the Dale Jennings banquet speech in season one, a phenomenal find. 
The Tangent Group was incorporated in 1968 as a nonprofit called the Homosexual Information Center. The HIC archives is now largely contained as a special collection at California State University, Northridge, holding over 4,000 books, periodicals, and pamphlets, many of them impossible to find elsewhere. And despite Don Slater's Tangent Group getting to keep most of the library in the 60s, Door Legs Group eventually became the largest collection of LGBTQ materials in the world keeping the name One. In 1994, the year Dorleg died, One merged with Jim Kepner's International Gay and Lesbian Archives. In 2010, the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives became a part of the University of Southern California's libraries, which I highly recommend visiting if you're a queer history buff. The One Archives are incredible. Thank you, Jim Kepner, for being such a hoarder of gay history. Woo, what a postscript. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Queer Serial, please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps the podcast reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode, including photos from the first annual reminder. Thank you to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects in the future. If you want to support the show, join my Patreon at patreon.com slash Queer Serial for lots of bonus content, or head over to QueerSerial.com slash donate. Also, thanks to, of course, the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives here in Chicago. Check out QueerSerial.com for more resources. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at QueerSerial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice Actors Donald Webster Corey, a.k.a. Edward Segarin, was performed by My Gramps Steve Camp. Reed Erickson was performed by Julian Hall, Door Leg by Salvio Gatto, Don Slater by Cody Kazubowski, Attorney by Matt Camp, Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. Let's go down to your next reaction. Ha! That's exactly what I wanted, Bill. All right, we'll go down to the next thing. Uh, this you were the one who told me I laughed like Peter Griffin. Jack Nichols by Nick Large, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller. Frank Kameny. It's Randy. Have you read the Times? Great. <laughs> that is funny. Thank That's you. That's so cute. That's my joke. <laughs> That's so cute. Thank you. I hope Randy thinks it's funny. <laughs> Lily Vincennes by Jen Freitag. Mattachinos by Dan Unser and Jen Dentel. Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle. Kay Lehusen by Katie Spleet. Susanna Valenti by Jacqueline Keeling. Clark Pollock by Andrew Casey. Florence Conrad by Adrian Barker. New York Times reporter by Garrett Williams, Craig Rodwell by Sean Calusa, Jack Nichols Sr. by Evan Camp, Lige Clark by Dan Unser. Yes, Lige! <laughs> FBI agent by Mike Lysak, Shirley Willer by Heidi Dub, Sickened People at the Picket by Mish Gruenfeld and Mike Kanish, and The Woman in Disbelief at the Picket by Emily Baytech. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. But most of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. Fourteen years ago, a book called The Homosexual in America, A Subjective Approach, inspired many of these actors. I remember that so well. Did you, you read that? I, eight years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> I just remember the, 
the name mainly because I always thought of Richard Corey. Do you know the poem? Who's Richard Corey? Well, it's a poem. Huh. Whenever Richard Corey walked downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was immaculate from toe to crown, good-natured and imperially slim. It's this wonderful poem about this wonderful man who used to come downtown, and the people would look at him. And then one night, Richard Corey went home and put a bullet through his head. Oh, my God. It's a fabulous poem. Who wrote that? Uh, you could look, I can't remember the name of the poet. Very you, you famous, had a very famous poem. You had that locked and loaded. Well, I learned it in <laughs> junior high school, man. You don't forget it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's ingrained in your brain now. So this uh, debate about whether or not we're sick and whether or not we should address it is, is heating up here, and it heats up in the ladder. I never knew about this. About the, the ladder stuff? Or the, de- the well, sickness the, debate? the sickness debate. Oh, yeah. It's huge, especially in the latter, about whether or not they should declare... Uh, a stance against sickness because at this point now Frank's saying it doesn't matter what we are we exist so why do research into it there's no fixing us or curing us or doing anything about it so let's just fight for our rights anyway and the women of the latter are mostly saying if we find out scientific proof that we exist then they can't deny us our rights that's fascinating um, so 